Well, good morning again, church. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. Uh, really great to see you. Uh, for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, your dining room, wherever you happen to be gathered. Uh, if, we're, if you're new to Crosspoint, um, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here. It is my joy to open up God's word, and it is a special joy as well to begin a brand new series uh, together this morning called Restore My Soul. What does it look like to find our identity in Christ? And so beginning this week, it will literally take us all the way uh, to uh, the Advent season. Um, And if you're like, oh, isn't that a long way off? It is not. I was at Costco yesterday. The Christmas trees were up. I'm like, really? Right next to the Halloween stuff. Anyway, all right. So we don't have time to talk about that. But This series will take us for the next 11 weeks. And so I want to encourage you, if you brought a Bible or you got an app on your phone, we want to spend time this morning in Psalm chapter 42 to begin this series. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes to get there. I'm going to intro a few things. But as always, too, you can go to cp.church on your phone. In the lower right corner of your screen, you'll see these little next steps, uh, that little icon there. And if you click that, a menu will come up. It'll say sermon notes is one of the options. You can click that. Any of the text we're in this morning, anything I put up on the slides will be there and you can follow along. You can actually take notes that way. If there's a quote, something that interests you, you don't have to furiously try and like you know catch it. You can reference that. So restore my soul is what we're going to be in. And this line comes from one of the most famous psalms in the world. It is a psalm that I had the privilege to preach on on my final Sunday before heading out to sabbatical, all right? And so if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, you're wondering like, hey, who's this strange guy that's up here? I am strange, and I've been away for a while, but I've been back here the last couple of weeks. And I was thinking back on just some of the things the Lord has been doing. And in fact, intentionally went into a time of sabbatical over the summer months, um, encouraged by my sabbatical counselor and coach to not actually have something planned for a fall sermon series, but to leave space so that the Lord might, that I might actually, you know, have just an opportunity to hear from the Lord and to, to listen and say, Lord, what would you have for all of us? Not just for me on a sabbatical, but what would you have for us as a church? And so, as I was reflecting and thinking about those things and from things that I was reading to time in the word in the morning to spending time journaling thoughts out to talking with my sabbatical counselor and coach, conversations with my wife, Heather, like all of these things, there was this repeated sort of refrain, something that I kept coming back to. And it was something that actually showed up in Psalm 23, which is the the psalm that I preached on back at the end of May. So let me just read it to you, these opening verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, that line there, he restores my soul. Like there's this cry of the psalmist, Lord, would you renew me? Would you refresh me? Would you restore my soul? And that theme has been incredibly helpful for me to just kind of join the psalmist in praying that, Lord, would you restore my soul? Not just in times of rest, not just in times of, oh, look at the Rocky Mountains are amazing, and they are, but what does it look like to have this sort of renewal and restoration? 
daily, weekly, in the mundane, in the everyday grind of life, and not just as individuals, but what does it look like for us together as a community to cry out to the Lord and say, would you restore my soul? And then to rest in his promise that he 100% will do that, not just someday off in the future, but that actually can start right here, right now. And one of the books that I took on sabbatical, all right, I had a number of things I was taking with me, um, was a new book by an author named James Brian Smith. Um, to be an author, you got to have three names. Um, and so James Brian Smith um, had written a series, this trilogy, that all the books started with The Good and Beautiful. He wrote The Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful Community. And then a couple of years ago, though he thought that series was finished, he felt, and through some encouragement of some friends and people speaking into his life, that there was one more book to write. And I happened to just hear him on a podcast. I thought, oh, that kind of sounds interesting, not knowing really what the book was about. Ordered it, took it uh, with me on one of our, our travels. And the, the last one was called, the most recent one, The Good and Beautiful You, um, which I'll admit, my kind of like cringe factor a little bit was like, oh, that sounds a little self-helpy. It sounds a little like, oh, you're good and beautiful. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm terrible, right? Um, and so I was like, what do I do with this? But the idea here is, no, good and beautiful. Like, how do you see, like, all of who you are restored to what Christ would have for you as you find your identity in Christ? And that's the big theme. And within that, it really was this work that helps explain the significance of the soul, what it looks like to have our souls restored, after that, I'd, uh, there's another book I wanted to read, um, and it was called The Soul of Shame. And then again, there's that kind of theme coming up, and another book, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard, and he's talking about the soul. And so it was just, again, this kind of confirmation of like, I think we need to kind of sit in this and ask the Lord, pray to the Lord, would you restore my soul, but also our soul? Because I think it's fair to say that life has a way of beating us up, kicking us when we're down, right? And that was heightened even over the last two, two and a half years. And I think anyone that is here this morning being like, no, I'm good, I'm unscathed, you have not attended to your soul. And so this series, this, even this morning really, is just an invitation, a bit of an introduction to where we're heading and why this is so important. And I hope you would hear in this an invitation to come and to lay before the Lord, hey, here's some of my unresolved like hurt and pain and things that I can't make sense of. And there's no promise that we'll get all the answers that we want, but there is this promise that the Lord does his work of renewal and restoration. And so that book that I mentioned is going to serve even just as a helpful guide. I want to give credit where credit is due. And so some of the uh, kind of how the chapters flow in that is serving as a bit of an outline for our overall 11-week series. And so the book is linked in the, the sermon notes as well. So I want to ask you a question, though, because I realize as we say, restore my soul, and we can be like, that sounds great, right? And then if you press, right, and you're like, what do we mean by soul? Like, how do you think about the soul? I think it gets real fuzzy really quickly, right? Because we'll use words interchangeably. We might say, does heart and soul, does that mean the same thing? And we'll hear in different passages of scripture, the soul kind of included in a list of things. How should we be thinking about that? I'm sure if I were to ask you for your own list, you could come up with, but here's a few off the top of my head that I was thinking about. Like we hear things like, Oh, we speak of soulmates, right? I found my soulmate, all right? Or we might talk of the work of the Christian of the church is saving souls. Okay, what, 
all fine and well. We might talk of soul food or soul music, all right? We're beginning to use these terms differently. You might say like, hey, she's really the soul of the team. So we might think in those categories. Um, I don't know why this is. There's probably some history to it. But if people are on board a ship or an airplane, right, and something even tragic happens, they typically talk about like there were 200 souls on board, right? They don't necessarily say there were 200 human beings on board, but souls on board, we use phrases like, oh, this is like a window into this person's soul, right? And we observe a piece of art or whatever it might be. And so I think very quickly, just in our everyday use, I would encourage you this week, just pay attention, like where the word soul comes up, where you hear it in a song, where you hear it referenced in a show you're watching, just the conversations, right? It gets used in a lot of different ways. And so we need to try and give some definition to this. It also made me think about uh, perhaps this is a prayer you're familiar with. Perhaps it was prayed over you as a young child. Um, maybe you've prayed it over your young children as well. It goes something like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I think this prayer needs to be worked through with a therapist, though. That's a terrifying prayer, is it not? <laughs> Like right before I get ready to, you know, like, hey, mom and dad are going to turn off the lights. You may not wake up, all right? <laughs> Somehow your soul might get taken. We'll pray that that happens. Like, wait, what? No, lights are out, mom, right? I mean, like, what is happening here? But again, we use this sort of terminology. And what do we mean by that? And so let's talk for a moment and start where the Bible starts, going all the way back to the creation account, and then we'll get to Psalm 42, I promise, all right? Um, but we want to start in Genesis chapter 2, just look at one verse. Here's this introduction, the reality of the soul. It's one of the, the times where the soul, this word, this idea, the language is used for the first time. So Genesis chapter 2, verse, verse 7, all right? There's the creation account, all the cosmos have been created, and then God gets to the pinnacle of his creation, and this is the account that he gives, all right? of how Adam was initially formed. And so put the words up on the screen as well. It says this, then it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now that word creature in different translations, if you grew up like kind of old school, like King James version of the Bible, all right, would say that the man became a living soul. And so this word there that we see for creature, uh, this word that can also get translated as soul, is a word that shows up over 700 times in the Hebrew scriptures, in the, the Old Testament. And I think it'd be helpful just to explore it together just for a moment. And this word that we see, depending on your translation, that might say became a living creature, a living being, came to life. So we'll use life and soul, right, interchangeably, is this word nephesh. All right? And so that's the word there that we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, or a variant of that. And so if you look at this word, all right, one of the things that's interesting is at just a most like super basic kind of literal translation, it literally speaks of the throat or the neck. So out of the dust, the man was formed, the Lord breathed in his life, the breath of life, and he became a living neck, right? Like a living throat. Like what, what does that actually mean? And why would that get translated into our word soul? And why does this show up 700 plus times? Like what does that actually, like, is that wrong? Like how should we be thinking about that? 
But those that are much smarter than I am who studied this and begin to point out some of these things, I think there's some helpful language here. So at just a very basic level, if you think about it, though, for a moment, how significant the throat and the neck actually are, right? That the throat is where you take in, all right? You're taking in oxygen, all right? It's where you take in food. It's where you take in water, as we'll look at Psalm 42 in a moment, where it speaks of, as this deer pants for water, so my soul, so my nephesh, is the language being used, pants for you, O Lord. Speaking of like the throat being dry, being parched. We also know that this is significant in that it's what connects our head to the rest of our body. That's fairly significant, all right? It's also a place of great vulnerability, Like it's one thing to get cut on the leg or the arm, but it's another thing to get cut in the neck, right? I don't want to get cut anywhere, but like the neck, I mean, it's more vulnerable. It's more serious. It can be a life or death matter. And so just with those sort of basic definitions or sort of ideas around it, when we use this word, it's communicating, oh, it's doing something significant. It's bringing in what we need for life in many ways. It's vulnerable. It should be attended to. It should be protected. It should be like looked after. And so this series then is an invitation to say, how do we factor all of that in? Are you caring for your soul? And to give a little bit of definition to it, Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, some of his chapters on the soul speaks of this. He says, what is running your life at any given moment, is your soul. Not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. The Latin word for soul is where we get our word animate, right? And so just that idea, it's like, that's what enlivens. It it integrates everything. In that same book, if this is helpful, maybe this will be confusing, but if this is at least helpful, because here's some of the words we might use. Willard lays out this sort of diagram of like, you've got the the spirit there, and that deals with like the heart and the will, some of your desires, and then it, it moves out to the mind, which would include things like your thoughts and feelings. But then there's the body, all right? We're not disembodied souls, so the, the body. There's a social or relational component, like we are made to exist in relationship and community. And then what you see is the outer layer, right? It's the soul. It's the thing that encompasses all of these things. And so again, we are to be people. If we're going to see our souls restored, we need to pay attention to all of those categories, because they all affect the soul. And so I want to just ask you as we start out this morning and before we get into Psalm 42, how would you answer this question? And I mean this in a, like, give some thought right now, but also knowing that like groups this week kick off and community groups will be going through this. There's be space to like talk about these things. You need to be in conversation with people, whether it's in a formal setting, informal, whatever, but like, how is your soul? How would you say it's actually doing? Are you attending to your soul? Like, we attend to lots of things in life, all right? And they're good things, and they're things we should attend to, right? But I wonder how many of the things that we make a priority and we'll schedule, like, we don't even think about that as far as our soul goes. Like, we might schedule an appointment to get our hair cut. Cool, nothing wrong with that, right? 
But like, do we actually schedule any time to even attend to our soul to think about such matters? Or do we just get so busy with life? And so related to that question, how's your soul, is this other question. As you consider it, as I consider it, as we consider it together, will you and I, will we actually be honest? Will we do some work of reflection, even thinking about things that are painful and that are hard and ask like the Lord, where are you in the midst of that? We're gonna see an honest soul, an honest man as we get to Psalm 42. That's what I love about the Psalms just in general. There's this raw honesty and vulnerability, a willingness to cry out. I love the way in the book, The Cry of the Soul, which is written together by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, hear these words, they say, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God, which is what we want, right? And then they say this, emotions are the language of the soul. So we should be paying attention to these things that are like little lights on the dashboard, right? Telling us, oh, pay attention to that. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. They continue, we are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. And in neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through, and listen to these words, through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. I really do wish that wasn't the case. Like most of us aren't signing up for, cool, I want a dose of brutal honesty and vulnerability. Like we tend to shy away from those things. Like if we were to continue this story of where this nephesh is introduced, this living creature, this living soul, we would turn literally to the next page and we're in the category now of the fall, Genesis 3, and a pursuit not of attending to the soul, but of choosing self. I want this for me, Adam and Eve reaching for the fruit. I wanna be like God. I want this story to be about me. That's where I'll find life. And what they do is they destroy their soul in the process. And then God comes looking for them. What do we find? Here's the pattern. It's not one of brutal honesty and vulnerability. It's one of hiding and of shame. And yet the Lord in his kindness moves toward them, calling out, where are you? Not because he's confused, like, all right, you guys are really good at hide and seek. I can't find you. Come out, come out, wherever you are, right? Like, that's not what's happening here. The Lord is calling to them, like, I am here. There are consequences, but I am going to do this work of restoration. That's the story of the Bible. We continue to be a people, I continue to be a person that wants to hide. And there's this invitation. So let's look now at Psalm 42, where we get this picture of this honest soul. There's far more in here than we have time for, but I just want this kind of big picture to be able to look at this and see, oh, here's somebody that is at least paying attention. They're naming their circumstances, all right? And what we will see is they're not owned by those circumstances, but they're also calling things out like, oh, this is hard and this is difficult. And that's the place. Like this community of believers, like this is the space for that. So let me read Psalm 42 and then we'll go back and kind of look at it section by section, but just to hear it in its entirety. It also, most scholars will tell you, chapter 42 and 43, 
like go together. They probably should be one psalm. They, ref- they repeat similar thoughts and a certain refrain that's in there, but those same scholars don't know how long I preach. So we're just going Psalm 42, uh, not doing Psalm 43, but it all kind of says the same thing, all right? So 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul, so pants my nephesh for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We'll hear that, those words, that refrain again at the end when we get to verse 11. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So as we look at this, Again, this is a picture, I wanted to spend some time here because it's a picture of a a brutal and a raw honesty and vulnerability. It doesn't, though there's hope in it, and I think there's a pathway towards restoration and renewal and some some key things in this text. There's honestly more time given to like, ah, this is difficult, this is hard, like he's wrestling with some things. I mean, it starts out, right, as a deer pants for flowing streams, and I don't know what comes to mind for you, but when I read that, right, I'm like, oh, it's, it's like this sort of picture. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. It's tranquil. There's this deer, right, and this little babbling brook. I know some of you are like, ooh, that's dinner, but that's not what we're thinking here, okay? Um, and, um, uh, and so it's like this peaceful, tranquil, pastoral sort of thing. But I found it helpful as I was reading and studying and somebody pointed out, they're like, all right, like deer, like all animals are very instinctual and they don't really get themselves to the point of like being deprived of water. I mean, the deer is panting at this point. It's parched, it's weary, it's broken down. These are drought conditions. Like that's what's happening. It's not like, oh, they're just moseying on over there. This is an animal that hasn't had any water probably in days and is desperate for it. And then the psalmist, right? We don't know this person's name, all right? We don't know a lot of detail, but we know some things. And one of the things we know is he is in a time of spiritual drought. Perhaps that's you this morning. Are you in that spot where things that at one time like resonated and they just bring joy and certain practices and maybe it just feels like all of that is sort of dried up. I mean, that's the language there. My nephesh, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul, he says, like pants for God. It's this recognition that what the psalmist needs to take in is the living waters of God, but he's feeling like things are spiritually dry, like he's in an actual drought. It continues, my tears have been my food day and night when they say to me all the day long, where is your God, all right? That language, 
just very briefly, I mean, most, to, to put this in modern day language, this wouldn't have been necessarily the language of the Bible, but when it's talking about this downcast soul and soul panting and all this, I mean, this is a picture, I think it's fair to say, of just what we would say, hey, this is a, this is a man that's in a state of depression. So he feels spiritually dry, spiritually cut off from God, spiritually parched. He's not eating, like his physicality aspect, he's not eating or sleeping. My tears have been my food, my sustenance. That's not working out too well, day and night. So if that's happening day and night, the guy's not sleeping well, right? And so this is a picture of someone where everything is in turmoil, emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, like all of this is happening. You know, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Like he's remembering that he used to have these times of like renewal. We know enough to know he had a role as a worship leader in that time and place. And they would lead, like the people, it wouldn't be like just kind of getting here when you, you get here, right? Kind of coming in at different times. It would literally be like everybody like lined up together and he'd be out in front and he's leading them in song. The songs didn't start when you got in for the church service, so to speak, right? The song started out there and then it was ushered in to this place and he got to lead that. Like that was what he's remembering. And while he's longing for those days, now he is spiritually far from God. He's also physically far from God, as we learn his location, as far as like from the temple, from Jerusalem. And he's got people around him that don't believe what he believes, and they're mocking him and they're taunting him. Do you feel that? Even if you're not being blatantly mocked, are there people that you have conversations with and you're like, oh, if, if they could really speak honestly, they probably just think I'm one of them crazy Christians, right? And just you feel that sort of tension. That's where this man is. And then what's so interesting, because this is, again, this is poetic language. Some of the imagery, some of the metaphors shift. It goes from drought to honestly drowning, all right? My soul is cast down within me, all right? If we jump to verses six to seven, it says, I remember you from the land of Jordan. So he's not in Jerusalem, up near the headwaters of the, the Jordan. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Like at first glance, I remember I was reading this and thinking, oh, cool, he's parched and there's a waterfall, praise God. But the, the language here is, no, this has come up like to his neck again and he's drowning. Like for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, the waters so often, particularly like these rough waters, these intense waters, these dark waters, it symbolized chaos. It's Genesis 1 all over again as the spirit hovered over the chaotic waters. So this is terrifying so he's spiritually depressed, right? He finds himself in this drought, but he also, there's another aspect that could be more accurate to say, feels like he's drowning. Do you feel like you're there? Verse eight, by, the, the, uh, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me. So there's some, some good things here, all right? A prayer to the God of my life, so he's praying. But then a quick reminder, just because you pray and do this doesn't mean, boom, everything's immediately fixed. He says, I say to God, my rock. So he's calling him the right thing. And then he says, why have you forgotten me? Such honesty here. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He mentions this a couple of times. Like, so there's this intensity around all of this. And so I want to just ask for just a, a moment here. Like, we see some things here in answer to this question, like what causes the soul to be cast down? 
If we could sit down and have a one-on-one conversation, I'm sure you could come up with your own list and I'd have my own list. And the book that I mentioned before by James Bryan Smith, he has his own list in there. And so what we're gonna do over the, the next 10 weeks together after this, after this week is to spend time looking at what are some of those things that if we don't attend to can be realities that will actually cause the soul to sort of shrivel up, cause the soul to not function it was, as it was created to function. In his book, The Good and Beautiful You, James Bryan Smith lists out these 10 things. And so this will kind of set some of the, the content of what we will be looking at and then finding, okay, if these are sort of the causes, some of the problems, what is the cure that's offered to us? And so we'll look at things like, hey, we're embodied souls, all right? So we don't ignore our physicality. What about feeling unwanted? How do we deal with that very real feeling that you know, we thought maybe would go away after we graduated middle school and it's still there with us? What do we do with our guilt and our shame if we don't attend to these things, if we don't find the cure for those that are offered in the gospel and identity in Christ, our souls will shrivel up. What does it look like and how do we wrestle with feeling disconnection from God or boredom or the sin that we have as opposed to living as people that are being sanctified, we continue to be enslaved to sin patterns. We look at our own story and though there are hard things, we live from a place of being victimized. When we look at our lives and we struggle with finding meaning, like how does that cause the soul to sort of shrivel up? How do we even think about the soul after we die? Is there existence that continues or is it just this non-existence? These are massively important things to consider and we're gonna spend some time in that. But know this, that for all of those things, if we are honest, brutally honest and vulnerable as we wrestle through that, there is good news on the other side of it. To see our souls restored, we need to go through that. And so I realize even up to this point, it's like, okay, cool, cheery church service, right? I'm glad Jamie's back. Um, Wow, sabbatical's really bummed him out, right? Like, I mean, kind of feel like there's this heaviness, but here's the beautiful thing, we'll close with this, as we look at this repeated refrain that was in verses five and 11, we get this picture of like, what does it look like to have our souls restored? And there's some beautiful clues in this text that will help sort of set the trajectory of what we're gonna be looking at week after week and what we need to rest in day after day. And in this, we have to consider, as we saw like the, the trajectory, what we saw with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to try and fix this, right? Are we going to try and fix it? Is it up to us? Will we go the way of the self or the way of the soul? And the way of the self leads us to a place, honestly, that is this self-focus. It leads to isolation, self-dependence. It leads to disintegration. It doesn't lead to the wholeness that we desire. It's us continuing to believe the lie and the hype that's constantly before us that we can make something of ourselves. I love the way in the book Soul Keeping, John Ortberg talks about the self. He says this, ironically, the more obsessed we are with ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. All our language reflects this. If you're empty, well, you need to fulfill yourself. If you're stressed, learn how to take care of yourself. If you're on a job interview, you have to believe in yourself. If someone dares to criticize you, you have to love yourself. If you're not getting your own way, you have to stand up for yourself. What should you do on a date? You ought to be yourself. And then he asks this very important, poignant question. What if yourself is a train wreck? What do you do then? And so the constant kind of false narrative, like we live in this contested space. You and I are always being discipled. 
And the constant message we're getting around the clock is pursue the self, be this individual, do that. You can solve it. You can figure it out. And Jesus is inviting us into this glad surrender to come before him and say, my soul is a wreck right now. It feels like it's shriveling up because I've been trying to pursue things on my own. Jesus, will you do this work of restoration? That's where the psalmist is getting. And what we know as he cries out to God, like we know even more fully how this story plays out. Because what Jesus does in kindness and his grace to us, Matthew 16 says these words, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Dallas Willard spoke of this, not just as, oh, it's talking about eternal destinations of heaven and hell, and though there's obviously truth to that, there's also something that should be considered like right here, right now. Literally, what if you got everything you could ever want or imagine? Got every relationship, you got every amount of money, every trip, every experience, right? All the friends you could want. Everybody thinks you're amazing. You got the house you want. You got the kids you want. They're all behaving the way you want. I mean, like all of these things. He says, what what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will he give in return for his soul? We're missing the big thing. And so Jesus, out of love, asks us to consider these matters because our soul is not just someday off in the future, but like right here, right now, what would it look like to have a soul that's flourishing? And so the psalmist does this in verses five and 11, they're the same words. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Friends, the picture here is this. You notice that like, he's talking to himself. We need to consider this. Like, we talk to ourselves more than anybody, and we listen to ourselves more, more than anybody. Right? There's this constant narrative that's going on. Like in our minds all the time. You're like, no, you're crazy. You're crazy too. We all do this, right? Um, And so there's this constant, and what are we going to believe? And what the psalmist is doing is like, oh, yes, there are hard things. I'm away from my people. I'm isolated. People are mocking me. There's very real difficulties. He's not denying that. He's even asking where God is. He feels spiritually depressed and there's a spiritual drought, all of it. But what he's doing here is he's sort of like grabbing a hole, like grabbing his soul by the scruff of the neck, so to speak, and just being like, hey, we need to pay attention. And our invitation every day is to start that way, to say, so like, pay attention to what is good and is true and is beautiful about us in Christ. Not anything to do with me internally. That's a pursuit of the self, but because of the work of Christ. And here's the thing. I cannot... I want you to, like, I legitimately believe this. It's not just like preacher speak or anything, right? Like, I cannot do that on my own. And you cannot either. Like, I need you. You need the person that's sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, right? Like, we need one another. Because sometimes it's really hard to actually sort of grab a hold of our soul and remember what is good and beautiful and true of us in Christ. This is the calling of the church, we get to remind one another. That's what's happening when we're singing songs and we're praying. Like we are reminding, we're declaring over one another. This is true. All week long, you've been beat down and told what to pursue as far as pursuit of self. But you walk through these doors 
And this is the space where we get to be reminded of what is most true about us because of the finished work of Christ. And so the psalmist then says, I can't be looking inward. I got to look up. And he says, hope in God. And he's doing this before his feelings have caught up. Right? He's like, I will one day praise him. He's looking forward to that. But you are my salvation. That's where he goes. And so, friends, here's the invitation, not only this morning and at the start of this series, but every day and as we journey together in this, is to take seriously Jesus's words, to be reminded of the invitation, to be brutally honest, I am spiritually parched. My soul needs to connect with God. And Jesus, in John 7, verse 37, says this, if anyone thirsts, anyone, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter if you go to church religiously or you hardly ever show up or whatever it looks like, right? Doesn't matter if you're young, you're old. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That that is the invitation from Jesus for our parched and our weary souls. Will we drink of the living water? And what is so beautiful, we'll close with this. If we were in the book of John and we read those words out of John 7 and you just kept flipping the pages and you're reading the story in the life of Jesus, we would get to John chapter 19. And in John chapter 19, there is Jesus being put on a cross on this Roman execution device, the most shameful death possible. And he's, he's hanging there with spikes being, that were driven through his hands and his feet and the clothes stripped off of him and his back, the, the, the flesh had been ripped off his back and he's, as he's hanging there, He's ready to utter these final words. He's ready to declare it is finished, that he had come and accomplished what the Father sent him to do. The Father sent him for parched and weary people like you and me who deserve to drink nothing but the wrath of God, that Jesus was willing to come and drink that cup of wrath all the way to the bottom so that you and I might drink of the living water that Jesus has. And so Jesus wants to declare it is finished. And what he utters right before that, we read these words in John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, what did he say? I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Friends, may we remember that the way our souls are restored is because we had a Savior who thirsted, a Savior who was willing to be cut off, a Savior who would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he endured that, that he drank the cup of wrath, of the Father's wrath that is what we should have drank. And instead, we get the living waters that Jesus provides. He thirsted so that we would never thirst again. He is the one who provides the restoration for our souls. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, particularly some of his older stuff, is a guy named David Wilcox. I will not sing these lyrics, but let me just read this to you. He, he writes in a very poetic way of a relationship and just navigating life. And he comes to the conclusion that the best picture for him and the people he's closest with is of a broken cup. And it's always leaking out. It can't hold very long what it's meant to contain. And he's reflecting on this relationship. And he says, I guess you cannot make me happy. And that's a money back guarantee. 
but you can pour yourself out to your empty, trying to be just who I'd want you to be, sort of that, that tension. Can we fulfill one another, right? Was Jerry Maguire right? No, right? Like all these things. Um, you cannot make me happy. It's just the law of gravity and that break in the cup that holds love inside of me. So he's reflecting on this. And then there's this line. And friends, hear this as this invitation that Jesus is giving to us in this series and each and every day. He says this, we cannot trade empty for empty. That's the pursuit of self, but to care for the soul, to go to Jesus, to hope in God, we must go to the waterfall for there, for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of us all. That's the invitation that Jesus gives. You're broken. Nothing in this world is gonna satisfy. It'll continually run out. But guess what? There's a waterfall of my grace, Jesus says. And it is ongoing, it is constant, it is pure, it is satisfying, it is refreshing. Come and be under that waterfall. So that's the hope, that's the invitation. It's gonna take some brutal honesty and vulnerability, but Jesus is there with us. We get to do this together. My prayer and hope for all of us is that we would experience as a community a restoration of our souls. As cups that constantly leak out, would we go to the waterfall? together. So let me pray for us, and I'll tell us how we're going to continue in our service. Father in heaven, and thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace. Jesus, thank you that you came and you thirsted so that we would never have to thirst again. Thank you that you fill us, you satisfy us. There's abundant grace for all of us, regardless of our stories. And God, I pray that as we continue now in our service, as we are sent out later as the church, we go about our week and whatever we do, God, I pray that we would do it for your glory and that we would experience just a deep and abiding joy. That we might experience just the filling that comes from the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.